Hello, and welcome to Low Orbit. So, my son got an ant farm for Christmas this year. You've probably seen them, but if not, it's just a clear plastic rectangle on a stand, maybe an inch thick with white sand in it. The ants come separately. You order them from Milton Bradley, and they only send them when there's a stretch of warm weather. So, in January, we had a reasonably long stretch of 50 degree days, and Milton Bradley sent the ants. And at first it was great. We put a tiny bit of food and a little spray of water in the habitat, and they got to work digging little tunnels and generally doing ant things. But after a week or so, they started acting a little sluggish, and then a few started dying. And even though I gave them food and water, within a month, they were all dead. I don't mean this to sound maudlin. They were just ants, after all. We didn't grieve their loss that much. When our first fish died, one of my son's Hanukkah presents... He cried for hours, and then it was less so with each successive fish. By the way, it turns out you'll, you'll burn through a few fish at the beginning before you get the right balance in your tank. Anyway, there were some tears when our geriatric cat finally shuffled loose this mortal coil, and a few more when we had to get rid of one of the mice when the other one was beating it up. What I'm trying to say is that the reaction to a loved one or a pet or even an acquaintance's death is hard to predict. Sometimes the grief comes pouring out like a faucet that won't turn off, and other times it feels like nothing at all. And sometimes that ache of loss takes years to catch up with you. And the way we behave in that moment, it doesn't always feel like we have control. And that's kind of what our stories are exploring today. We have two stories about loss and grief and mourning and how we cope with tragedy. We start with a short piece from producer Gray Newman. He talked to his friend David Kreider. For this story. Well, I'm a 22-year-old dude. This is David Kreider. He's a college student at the University of Denver. College student-ish at University of Denver. Uh, studying computer engineering, maybe, I think? He's taking a little break. I'm at four out of probably 12 years for my bachelor's degree. Um, I read a lot of books, and I like to play Dungeons & Dragons. He wears New Balances more than just about anyone I know. Uh, yet, today he was feeling particularly fancy and decided to wear... Well, I'll let him describe. I have some well-worn brown Red Wings. Okay, okay. That I am wearing over a pair of lovely wool socks. Ooh. Do you like the wool socks to be soft or, like, thick or, like... They've got to be thick enough to have a little bit of... We talked about wool socks for about six minutes. These are a little bit too warm for this weather. I, but would, I would imagine it's 75 degrees outside. I think so. But that's not what this story is about. I asked David what the pivotal moment of his life was. Uh, what made it all different? The biggest one in my life definitely would be um, the death of my dad. It was July 15th of 2015 it was well it was 2:43 in the morning 2:43 in the morning yeah um so i think it was a thursday or something like that 
um, my dad had been fighting a year-long battle with cancer. So he, we had had to move him to a hospital about three hours away. And my mom got a call from work, at, at work rather, um, that they had to move him into the um, ICU. She just had to drop everything and run out. And then called me at my work um, and told me, come home, we're packing you into Salt Lake right now. Okay. I went in and just kind of sat with my dad while my mom went and talked to the doctors. Um, because, I mean, my dad had been in and out of the ICU a couple times and had always recovered because he's, like, he was the toughest guy in the world. Um, but this time he had, like, some really bad blood infections and I think it was herpes had attached to his brainstem. Um, I was, I think I was there for the last time he spoke. And even that wasn't really coherent. Um, and then a while after that, um, made the decision to pull him off life support and start give him, giving him some morphine injections. Um, and it was seven more hours until he died. And that's probably the uh, worst seven hours that you can live through. Because, I mean, I can't really blame him, but he did not want to die. Before the death, David was shy and reserved and kept to himself. But I would also say I was, I was happy. But the loss changed David. Um, for like a period of a year and a half, is I was just numb. And I just, I continued to, you know, do things and go through the motions and in some ways pretend to be happy um, but this this was also the year that I you know went off to college here in Denver 12 hours away from my hometown so yeah, pretending to be happy and pretending well enough to make people believe that you're happy was externally helpful but I think internally harmful Because it, it let me continue on through life, but also it didn't let me heal any. I asked David how he could heal better. I'm not sure. That's kind of a question that I have avoided asking myself. Because if, if you could go back in time and, and fix problems, yeah, that'd be great. But you'd also make more problems and lose all of the good things that you have. So if I could have healed better, I think that would be awesome, but also I wouldn't be where I am now. And I'm kind of happy with where I am now. Gray Newman is a multimedia artist and creator based in Denver, Colorado. He primarily produces audio pieces ranging from music to narrative podcasts. He's also photographed for bands such as Gnome Bay, Alt J, Young the Giant, 
Joy Wave, Cleopatra, and Grandson. His most recent pursuit is a satirical Instagram account at nws.stnd, newsstand, that pokes fun at contemporary media sources such as BuzzFeed, Vox, and more. You can find more of his other work at thegreyhound.com, that's gray with an A, and on Instagram at gznewman. And as usual, we will have links to all of that in the show notes. Our next story comes to us from writer Maraid Case. This piece was originally written for the Pop Conference and published in Maggot Brain, a magazine edited by Mike McGonagall and published by Third Man Records. Just a quick heads up, content-wise, this is about the Gits lead singer Mia Zapata, and it does talk frankly about her rape and murder. In 1986, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, Mia Zapata, Andy Kessler, Matt Dresner, and Steve Moriarty, all college students at Antioch, started their band, The Gits. They named themselves after a Monty Python skit where a cocktail party host introduces two guests who live next door to each other. One guy is a normie named John Stokes, and the other is called Sniveling Little Rat-Faced Git. Soon the other Gits join. There's dreamy, fat, boring old, and the kids, dirty, lying, little two-faced, and ghastly, spotty, horrible, vicious little. Their home, Mr. Git explains, while Mrs. Git barfs into her purse, is newly painted with pus. Pretty soon the scene cuts and a voiceover says, and now a nice version of that same sketch. Of course, that one is hopelessly boring, and everyone decides they prefer it gross and real. In 1989, the band and a lot of their friends left Antioch and moved to Seattle. I moved to Seattle that year, too, only I did it to start kindergarten. The break, of course, is that Mia was raped and murdered four years afterwards. This can't be ignored. Mia was here, and then she wasn't. She isn't. Other people knew her personally, and so it is weird that I am telling you about your friend. You loved her. I can't. Mia was strangled by her hoodie cord. I cut the cords from my hoodies for her for decades, until one day I just forgot about it, probably because by that point I'd been attacked myself and just wasn't afraid anymore. I'm not saying our traumas are the same at all. I am telling you that we are all vulnerable. Vulnerable means able to be hurt, to have soft and exposed parts of your body. And it is different than naive, which means just born. Death can happen to anyone, just like getting caught in the rain. Soon after their move to Seattle, which was still home to Boeing headquarters and not yet socked in the gut by Microsoft, by Amazon, by Starbucks, the Gets released several singles, including Precious Blood, Second Skin, and Spear and Magic Helmet. I've listened to Second Skin probably one million times. Obviously, that's a high estimate, but it feels right. And once I broke a rib doing it, so now my body holds the sound, too. Sometimes this is nauseating because now I am older than Mia was or will be. I am living after. Can't seem to get out of this hole, she sings. I've dug myself right back in. Just to wake up tells me I must be brave. Almost makes me think I'm dead.
Mia was in a hole and got out of it. Then she dug another and it was deeper. But that's okay because Mia's not a fool. She's brave. She's able to see death, but she isn't it. Playing this song reminds us. One important detail about the sniveling rat-faced gets is that they believed in radical sincerity. So when Mia sings, she really is talking about herself. Even so, the songs aren't designed as unveilings or secret codes. They are special in their gentleness and their stance. The trouble with describing feelings precisely is that once you do, the feeling is frozen like sound and polycarbonate and plastic. It is so close to death that it reminds us we are still alive. Mia's dad remembers that she was double-jointed. When she was little and their family went outdoors, mosquitoes and flies would snag in her hair. She'd spend big parts of every trip combing out the bugs. Mia's friend Jess remembers that when they were students at Antioch, Mia wanted to make a chicken sculpture using only sheet metal and a pair of scissors. Jess was like, this is nuts, but I want to be this girl's friend, so we're making a chicken sculpture. Mia's band called themselves her band and remember the terrible joke she'd make on the road. Whenever they drove past a bunch of cattle, she'd say, look at those cows. They are outstanding in their field. Mia had a long neck and long legs and frequently stood with her knees together. So after a while, people called her the chicken. She had a tattoo of one on her calf. One trouble with death is that usually at the end of a list like this, we'd say Mia's at Picora on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, or she's playing Rock Candy next month. But we can't. Well, actually we could, but it wouldn't be true. And so this becomes a haunting, this terrible lurch of my body continuing past yours in time while my brain still expects to see you when I show up at the bar. A version of this happens when someone who looks like my ex shows up at the bar and honestly, I'm not sure the immediate feeling is different. In both cases, the body, the heart especially in my experience, lurches. In Mia's case, in Esme Barrera's, in everyone else's, because I don't need to say their names to you, I need to say them to myself. After a point, it is overwhelming to mark publicly while mourning privately. I don't forget my friends, and I know they weren't saints either. And in Mia's case, the terrible lurch of mourning is really complicated because my body becomes hers every time I walk home alone at night. Her murder cuts that joy sometimes, and at others it turns it into a performance, which is equally exhausting. And yet, obviously, I'm still so lucky. My point here isn't to ask for pity, especially as a cis white woman, but to say that mourning is a loud, constant buzzing that can tip into terror and joy in ways that feel random and often are. The problem with this, the real illness of it, is that eventually home becomes unfamiliar. Home Alive, the anti-violence organization founded by nine women after Mia died, was originally called Get Home Alive. They changed it when they remembered many people already are home when someone tries to hurt them. Mia Catherine Zapata was born in Louisville in 1965. She went to a Catholic high school whose colors were white, light blue, and navy, and in 1984 she enrolled at Antioch. Their motto is, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. At Antioch, Mia met friends and her band, who were her friends too. 
They became family. You could draw an aerial map of the band's interactions with each other on stage, hip checks, winks, nods, eyes, and it would look like those maps in Family Circus where Billy runs all over the neighborhood on one very important errand. Some of this was pure magical love, physical and emotional, and some of it was political, though the Gets would not have called themselves a political band. Steve the drummer talks about studying civil rights in high school and then finding crass and wanting to be that. One of Crass's mottos is be exactly who you want to be, do what you want to do. It is an encouragement to take space, not an invitation to steal it. When Mia first met Steve, she said, you look like Mr. Peanut, and told him that playing drums is making art. Mia and Steve often talked about their mission, which was the music. Mia painted a lot at Antioch, too. She made self-portraits and scenes and painted her friends into them. She stood in front of canvases like how she stood in front of an audience. In Seattle, the band lived and rehearsed in Capitol Hill at the Rat House, which was at 19th and Denny. It was home. Six or seven people lived in the three bedrooms. They shoplifted because, duh, and pooled their money for booze and food. People drank a lot because people were holding a lot of shit they needed language for, and time, and care, and when you don't have those things, booze works okay for a while. The Gits would practice in the basement for six hours a day. Their landlord was a warlock who would ask crows to land on the house. The neighbors painted a white cross on their property to ward him off. During band practice, Mia would come down with a tape recorder to get clips, then disappear upstairs and come back with lyrics when she was ready. She was dyslexic and wrote in all caps. People in that same house worked with Seattle Black Panthers to overturn racist laws about weed possession. They played piano on breaks from the lunch shift at Picora. This is not romantic. Instead, it is a series of facts about how many people lived in Capitol Hill in the early 1990s. Other facts. Mia was quiet, often because she was shy. She wasn't a riot girl. No one was then, really. The band never really gave a shit about grunge and, separately, resisted corporate media overall until they realized those platforms might help find Mia's killer. Mia was here and then she wasn't. I think it is violent to say people resist making money only when they're young and healthy. I think, as Avery Gordon has said, that it is incredibly hard just to comprehend modern forms of dispossession, exploitation, repression, and their concrete impacts. This includes an always already racial capitalism and the determining role of monopolistic and militaristic state violence, which creates ghosts, and you can hear that in as woo of a way as you like. One trouble with ghosts is that they haunt, and when they do, it's often because of unresolved social violence, like, say, your singer getting murdered and left in a field. This implies that there's something to be done. The trouble with that, for Mia, is that no one could do anything for 10 years. No one knew who killed her, which meant anyone could have. I learned to defend myself at home alive, but that didn't stop my ex from hitting me. These are facts. It's important to sit with them. Like I said, I'm living after, and I am fine. Often I am great. Sometimes I think I'm happier than anyone has ever been in the history of the world. This, too, is different than being naive.
Mia and Matt wrote a song called Sign of the Crab. Never ceases to amaze me the things you try to pull, it goes. Anything to get me in and then get me killed. This song is dangerous. I do not believe we cause our fates, but by doing the work we are meant to do, we understand more about the world as it is, and so we communicate that in the work. Go ahead and slice me up, spread me all across this town, because you know you're the one that won't be found. I know you know this, but Mia didn't cause her death. Drinking, headphones, words, clothing, the risks that come from having a body around other bodies, none of these make you die. On July 7th, 1993, Mia Zapata was back in Seattle after playing in Los Angeles and getting paid for it. She felt good about that. After a day of work in the studio and at the pizza place, she went to the Comet to drink with her friends Valerie and Celine. Mia licked Valerie on the cheek when she said goodnight. What happened next has been documented so many times because we repeat what is unthinkable to try and understand it. This can be a spell, and it can also be a police report. The more times you tell a story, the greater the margin for error. Every time you tell a story, part of your brain thinks it's happening right now. When she left the comet, Mia went across the street to see her friend TV. Then she tried to talk to an ex, but he wasn't around, and of course neither was the internet. After that, time passed, and during this time, Mia died. She was here, and then she wasn't. I have always known this could happen to me. The part I didn't understand until later was not what I had learned to fear at home alive, the way bodies angle forwards, for example, how to hold a knife, but how deep the silence is afterwards. I did not understand how hard it would be to leave and stay gone, and if I had really known how lonely it would be, I would have taken even more time to do it. This is important because it shows that the real question isn't how to avoid death, but how to sit with it. Other questions. How can spaces who've outed predators be restored? What even is justice in late-stage capitalism? How could Capitol Hill in 1993 been less afraid of drugs and murder? Can we actually keep our friends from dying? The detail that makes me cry is that Mia's roommates didn't even wait until morning to call the morgue. They did it right away because experience taught them to do so. Mia was identified by the chicken tattoo on her calf. She was found by a sex worker at 24th and Yesler, raped, bitten, and strangled. Her underwear, wallet, and bra were stuffed in her pocket. Someone's saliva was on her left breast. The report says the medical examiner determined that Zapata was strangled with a ligature and concluded that the drawstring of her sweatshirt was the ligature used. She was there, and then she was gone. Mia's dad remembers driving through downtown to get to the viewing at Bonnie Watson, a place where we used to dumpster flowers. I used to walk down Broadway clutching slimy gladioli. Admission to Mia's service was one yellow rose, 
And at one point in the car, her dad got lost, then looked up and realized everyone on the street was holding a flower. He could follow them to his daughter. At the home, people sniffed pieces of their hair and laid it around Mia's body's heads, shoulders, and chest. They buried her that way. When she died, dozens of people said Mia was their best friend, and truth is, she was. Mia was fully herself without shame, which in turn encouraged other people to be fully themselves. This is crucial, sloppy elegance. Right when Mia died, the band was talking with Atlantic about releasing a record, which very likely would have happened. When the label asked the band about their goals, Mia had hers ready. All I really want is a cabin in the woods, a sheepdog, a jeep, and to be able to write music, she said. And they said she could have that right now. She could have, too. After Mia died, 30 or 40 people got together to do something. After that meeting, nine women got together and founded Home Alive. At first, the collective was art-focused because art helps to realign and make sense outside of time. The women sprayed words on walls and under bridges, morphed rebars into rape scenes, and painted a mural on the side of the comet. A person with theatrical makeup, a green sweater, and breasts, and the words, all women fight back and aim low, floating around her. It is unfair to hold 1993 language to 2020 standards, and having read the reports, I definitely understand why Mia's friends would be on the no-penetration plan. But to be clear, your body might have nothing to do with your gender, and all genders are capable of violence. Soon, the collective found money to bring up a man from California for a self-defense workshop. The class went well, but after realizing the guy was sleeping with his students, the collective decided to teach their own classes, for themselves, by themselves, and so they did. Offerings ranged from verbal boundary setting to bottles and chains. The Panthers and the NRA both taught gun workshops. There was a sliding scale and childcare, and meanwhile, of course, people still didn't know who had killed Mia. Just called whoever it was the fucker. The police were asking everyone to come in and give fluid samples, and so everyone was a suspect. You would sit at the comet and think, did you do it? Imagining all your friends as rapists and murderers. This too is death. It is a quiet violence. As the months came and went and came and went, Home Alive and the Gits decided to hire a private investigator because they were worried the cops weren't doing enough. This cost thousands of dollars and dozens of benefits and musical compilations. David Bowie helped, and Joan Jett, and Hootie and the Blowfish, and Sonic Youth, and Pearl Jam. It was a hunger without end because eventually there were exactly zero leads, still no Mia. And anyway, justice can't fix what is lost, even when you think you'll die otherwise. You think you'll die because a part of you did, and that part is really loud, and obviously that's confusing. Home Alive became a nonprofit, then shifted as people grew and moved and invigorated and exhausted themselves. In 2010, it changed again from a nonprofit back to a volunteer collective and taught workshops in high schools and horizontally aligned businesses. The curriculum still lives online for free. Home Alive did essential work. Personally speaking, it gave me the tools to defend myself and later the agency to know that when a bad thing happened, it wasn't my fault. Its dedication and ferocity also taught me to get my own shit together about anatomy versus gender, race and class, and other intersectional issues.
In 2001, a Seattle police detective retrieved the saliva samples found on Mia's body and submitted them to a laboratory for DNA analysis, a technology unavailable in 1993. Forensics identified the two profiles, Mia's and someone else's, and submitted them to CODIS, the then brand new national DNA database. In 2002, the other sample matched cheek swabs from a Cuban fisherman named Jesus Mezquia, then on probation for a felony in Florida. The odds of this match were 1 in 1.5 trillion. Given this information, as well as the facts that Jesus lived in Leshai at the time Mia was killed, that his girlfriend was out of town that night, and that multiple women came forward in court and outside of it as witnesses to his violence— Eventually, Jesus was sentenced to 36 years in prison, which is 10 more than expected because of the particularly painful injuries he caused, as if an eye for an eye exists. He never took the stand. Do I believe Jesus did it? Yes, but that's not the point. I also think it's suspicious that a match was found immediately after Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez used Mia's case to advocate for the CODIS during the Bush administration. It is suspicious that the person convicted for Mia's murder is also a person of color who came to the U.S. on the Mariel boat lift. It is highly likely that by locking up Jesus, we are stopping him from hurting other people, but we are not solving anything. We do not get that decade back. We do not hear or make any more songs. And we are caging another person like an expensive animal or science project. I don't have an immediate solution here. However, if everyone can be home alive, we must mean everyone, and we must figure out how to be less afraid of death and threat and loss. I don't know how to do this alone, but I want to figure out how. When I remember walking down Broadway with those dumpstered gladioli, I remember the crows above my head, not impossibly some of the same ones who sat on the rat house roof. Mia is gone, and Home Alive is gone, and Jesus is in a cage, and when I walk Capitol Hill alone at night, the only things I really recognize are the street names and the comet. The crows were there last night, too, when I finished this at that bar. Crows do not swoop. They take the most direct path between two points, and when they aren't, they're hovering above their nests, keeping home in close sight. Dr. Mairead Case teaches, writes, and edits in Denver. Her novel Tiny, a translation of Antigone, is forthcoming from Featherproof Books on August 20th, 2020. And that's going to do it for today's episode. If you've got something you think would sound good here in our little program, an essay, a story, a sound thing you made, 
please don't hesitate to reach out. We're on all the online places, Twitter, Facebook, Facegram, Instabook. Yep, those places too. We're on all the online places, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you prefer email, you can also reach us at denverorbit at gmail.com. I'll have links to all of those things in the show notes, of course. And we will see you again very soon with more new episodes of this here program. <laughs>